service, you would have seen Daniel up here singing, looking over at his wife the whole time. It was really sweet. I asked Jake in the first service how he could um, pray for his family and talk about them without crying. And uh, it's, I can't imagine the sacrifice of, of sending um, you know, my children and their grandchildren to a, to a place that's, what, it takes 40-some hours to get there? I mean, how long does it take to get there? 34, 34 hours. And, and to sacrifice for the gospel that way as a family is just, that's just really huge. And so I really appreciate, uh, you know, their family putting their money where their mouth is uh, and encouraging that. It would be easy to be like, oh, no, don't, don't go. Uh, that's not what they did. You know, I got to see them do that. And so um, I would just encourage you, Jake, that uh, what, what I see Hunter doing is what you've been doing all these years, uh, working out <laughs> and uh, loving Jesus with the people in your community and uh, loving people from faraway places. So uh, it's not by accident. So like father, like son. Uh, my name is Noah. I get to do a couple things here at North Wake. I, I get to do some equipping where I help to uh, equip North Wakers in their ministries here and their personal lives out in the community. Uh, and then also I get to do that in some other countries with people that are out there uh, in the U.S. and other countries, uh, reaching their communities. And then I do some uh, kind of establishing type of work where I get to teach and help grow up believers in their faith here at North Wake and, and some other places too. And, and so it's a joy to be able to get to do that this morning and to do that with a team of people, uh, a varied, really gifted, skilled team of people who are teaching God's Word. Uh, it's just a, a joy and just an accountability to be able to teach in that and that team, so I'm thankful for that. Um, I hope you don't miss what a gift that is uh, here on Sunday mornings where you and your children and your teenagers have access to such excellent teaching uh, with highly trustable and humble uh, leaders. Uh, I get to spend a lot of time with, with the folks that lead here, and there's a lot of just really good people. And so I would encourage you, don't miss out on the opportunities to learn on Sunday mornings uh, in our classes uh, or to be in a good small group during the week. If, uh, if you're not sure how to get involved in a class or how to get involved in a small group, after the service, please come talk to me. Or you can uh, go out into the lobby. There will be a meet and greet uh, with some of our leaders there who can help you figure out uh, how to get involved, how to find your way here at, at North Wake. Uh, we're in the middle of a series this morning that's designed to help us find our way in this world to consider why are we here and the most direct way to, to figure that out is to go to the source, to see where we come from as humanity, as men, as women. And it's God's kindness to us to give us a, a clear explanation of our origin in detail. Not just where we come from, but why we exist. And we see that in the passages that we've been talking about and what we'll look at this morning. And so, over the last few weeks, we've, we've learned that humanity is to image God or reflect him in our being and activity, that our likeness, will, uh, our likeness with him, it, it shows him off to all who will see that, that as we live, live lives of true worship and loving obedience, we're, we're like mirrors, like our mirrors at home that reflect us. Uh, when we live well, we reflect God. When we be his people, we reflect God. So that origin story that I mentioned is broken up into three parts. One part is the, the wide lens version that shows the big picture of, of how the man and the woman will image God. Carson covered that two weeks ago. Uh, part two and three are like the close-up version where the man is created, then the woman. 
Larry covered part two, the creation of man, last week. And as that story was kind of, or as that part of the story was winding down last week, we saw uh, that there's a bit of a wrinkle in that story. All is going well. God created man. He's showing him around the place. He's explaining how all the food of the tree is good and, uh, you, know, you know, how do you live here in the garden? But then there's this one tree that if you eat of it, you will die. That, that if you eat of it, it will ruin everything. And, and here the reader notices something of a wrinkle in an otherwise smooth narrative. Like if you were enjoying an excellent meal and there was a piece of sand in your food. Right? It's tiny, but it's, it's hard to ignore. It's, it's halting, right? It's, uh, it seems out of place. And, and the wrinkle that I mentioned, it's, it's like a dark spot in an otherwise bright story. It seems to be foreshadowing something gloomy. Uh, this week in part three, the creation of the woman, that wrinkle, it, it lays over into our story and it creates a bit of drama for the reader. So before we look at that, I want to mention a couple of things. Uh, there's going to be a lot that I don't get to say this morning in my message. Lots and lots and lots and lots that I, I could say. I wish I had time to say that I'm not going to be able to say. Two things specifically that you may still have questions about when we're done. First, singleness and how that relates to creation and life in the body of Christ. Um, I, I'm not going to get to that this morning. But I did do a sermon in 2008 and yes, that was a long time ago, 2008. And uh, if you want to listen to it, it's on our website at northwake.com. You can go and find it there. Uh, secondly, uh, specifics of relationship between husband and wife. Uh, I spent a good bit of time talking about that when we did Colossians back in September. Uh, and so uh, Colossians 3, 18 to uh, 4, 1 uh, that uh, there's a lot of detail there. So if you feel like I want to know more, those may be helpful to you. You can find better resources out there than my sermons, but at least if you disagree with those, you can take me to lunch and straighten me out. So you can kind of feed back on those if you want to. So uh, feel free to do that. As we begin this morning, let's pray and ask God to help us as we open his word together. Holy Spirit, you powerfully guided the writing of the words we're considering this morning. May you give us eyes to see and ears to hear how they reveal Christ and our need for him today. May Jesus be honored and worshiped through what is said and thought here now. Thank you, Father, we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please look with me at Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. It says this, then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. After days of creating, then declaring things good, we see a break in that pattern with the words, It is not good. It seems that in verse 18, that there's a, it's a companion with verse 17, creating that drama that I mentioned before. And the reader is left thinking, What will become of this? What will happen? because of what is mentioned in these verses. So first, we want to address the idea of alone. So what does it mean that the man was alone? Don't think Tom Hanks and Castaway with only a volleyball as a friend. No. He has God as his nearest companion. He has a forest full of food, a bountiful paradise full of pleasures. So, so what 
was this aloneness and why was it not good? And as we work our, as we work our way through the passage, the notion that something is lacking will come into focus. Lack rather than disorder will be presented as what is not good. Something missing rather than something broken. Much like if, if one were to build a machine that needed a spark plug, before the addition of the spark plug, the machine would be not able to function as intended. It would be, in effect, not good. And if the machine of humanity was intended to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and, and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth, then that objective would be severely hindered if man were to remain alone or without the woman. Something is missing. Someone must be added for the image of God to be fully carried forth as described in Genesis 1.27, where it said, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's a matter of both essence and function. Humanity can't be or do what God intended without the addition of the woman. So God gets to work. He announces how he will address the issue of man's aloneness. He says, I will make a helper fit for him. The word helper here is used 22 times in the Old Testament, twice in chapter 2 of Genesis, once here in verse 18 and once in verse 20. And every other time that it's used, it refers to those from whom Israel seeks help. 17 times it refers to how God helps his people each time as protector or deliverer, a shield or a keeper. And then on three other occasions, it's used when Israel seeks help of another nation for protection or for deliverance. It often denotes an alliance or partnership. So don't think Santa's little helper or water boy or the one who makes sure the boss has the tools he needs. A better analogy might be the type of help that one would seek from a Navy SEAL if we want to be consistent with the other uses of the word in the Old Testament. So a helper here could easily denote one who will be in an alliance of partnership with the man, offering some sort of deliverance. There's another aspect of the coming helper we must consider. She will fit or correspond to the man. We will see in the coming verses that in creation, the animals all have one that fits or is like or corresponds to them, but not for the man. As mentioned before, something, someone is missing. So in summary, we might say that the notion of helper is meant to denote that she will be that which God uses to deliver man from his aloneness. She will fill in what is lacking in her absence. Humanity is designed to include her presence. She will be the deliverance from the present reality, bringing a sense of wholeness upon her arrival. Look with me in verse 19. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. As a part of establishing humanity and creating this 
fitting helper, God includes man in the creative work. He does so by giving him specific work to do. He is to name all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. So, as people who have heard this story before, you've probably heard this story before, it's easy to miss the significance of what is happening here. So I'd like to slow down a little bit to take this verse in. And, and to do that, I'd like to highlight a few things I see in this section. First, God partners with the man in a working project. God does a part in forming all the birds and beasts, and then he invites the man to do a part in naming Second, God seems to have an interest in what man will call the birds and the animals. He wants to see what the man will do. So for a God who knows everything, why does he want to see? Well, it it can't be that he wants to find out, but rather I think because he takes some joy in seeing him do the naming. Third, God allows the man to have final say on what they are called. There's an open-handedness God has in his inclusion of the man here. Like a father with a son, he allows him to do his part and learn along the way, working in concert, bringing about a good end. In addition, don't miss the deep significance of giving something a name. One of my favorite things to do is to name things. Uh, really, I, I really like to name stuff. One thing we don't do in our family, I don't know why, we don't name cars. I know some of you do that. We don't name cars. So that's just a thing we don't do. I don't know why. Raise your hand if you name your cars. Yeah, there's a lot of you. It's kind of a thing. So we don't do that. I don't know why. So I like naming stuff, businesses, ministries, kids, dogs. It's, it's part of caring for a thing. Caring for a thing you've, you've either made or been entrusted with, And it's one of the ways we give meaning to things. We name our children after those we admire or those ideals we hope they will live for. A name gives dignity. It sets trajectory. It claims responsibility. It represents care. And it can denote origin. Names can bless and names can curse. And and we see each of these examples through names given throughout the Bible. For example, Moses means to pull out or draw out of water because he was drawn out of the water. But God will also use him to draw the people out of Egypt through the water. Likewise, Jesus, his name means salvation because he will save his people from their sin. Right? So names are, are very meaningful and powerful in the scriptures. And God invites the man to be like him and to imitate him, just as God called day, day, and night, night, and earth, earth, and heaven, heaven. So the man now calls them, the animals, by the name he gives them. It is a sign of delight and care, responsibility. And if we were to summarize this verse, it may go something like this. God says, I form, you name. We take care of it together. It seems like a a concert of responsibility where they care about these things together. One forms and one names. We'll see in the next verse that God has another objective in bringing all the animals to be named. And here's the objective. He wants the man to realize or learn something. Look with me in verse 20. 
says, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast in the field. But for Adam was not found a helper fit for him. So as the man is doing the naming, he sees a pattern among the birds and the beasts and the, uh, the livestock. They come in pairs, he's and she's, males and females, that fit or correspond to each other. He donkeys and she donkeys, he hawks and she hawks. They have a likeness, but a difference also. They, they go together. The fact that they are matches or they're pairs seems to be the idea here. But for him, there was no match. His pair was incomplete. No helper fit for him could be found. Something or someone is missing. The man's aloneness is put on display and it is not good. A question arises, how will humanity be fruitful and multiply? How, how will they have dominion over creation? An image God has mentioned in chapter 1 without the helper that fits the man. The naming of the beasts and the birds and the livestock brings the issue into focus. So what will be the solution? What will God do? Let's look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. God continues his work of creation. This time he takes a different approach. The man he created from the dust of the ground, and he breathed life into it. This time, rather than forming from dust, he uses the body of the man to acquire his building block for the helper. It seems that the author intends to distinguish the man and the helper from the rest of creation. Uh, uh, John Selhammer, Old Testament uh, professor, uh, says it this way. In the first chapter, the author has already intimated that humanity's creation in the image of God somehow entailed their creation as male and female. In the narrative of the creation of the woman in chapter 2, the author has returned to develop this theme by showing that humankind's creation in God's image also entails a partnership between man and his wife. The likeness which the man and the woman share with God in chapter 1, finds an analogy in the likeness between the man and his wife in chapter 2. Here also, in the first chapter, the human likeness to God is shown against the backdrop of their distinction from the other creatures. In short, uh, I see three marks of humanity that distinguish them from the rest of creation here in Genesis. One, their likeness to one another as male and female. That's different. The partnership they enjoy with one another and God. And their likeness to God as those created in his image. None of the other creatures are created in God's image. None of the other creatures are invited to partner with God in his work of establishing and caring for creation. And none of the other creatures enjoy the unity and likeness that mankind enjoys as male and female. Something is different. The varied creative approach that God takes also includes something really interesting. 
He's going to do something different here. And what he does is he puts the man to sleep. He puts him into a deep sleep, which on the face, it may seem like a simple supernatural type of anesthesia. And though I'm sure the man was glad for this deep sleep, because who wants to be awake during surgery? It, it seems like I get the sense that something more, something greater is going on than a medical process here. Throughout the scriptures, sleep can represent the dark place where God does transformative work or figurative death that brings about something new or better. We see it twice later in the book of Genesis where God makes his covenant with Abraham, promising to make his offspring like the many stars. He also promises a, a land for those descendants, and, and God puts him to a deep sleep, right? And it's kind of some weird stuff happens. It's like kind of a dark and moody scene. In addition, after that, we see that that same promise is reaffirmed to Jacob as he sleeps. This is when he has that vision of the ladder and the angels going up and down. God confirms his promise through the work he does as they sleep. And it's no different with the man here. God does what he says he will do. But many times we see in the scriptures that his people they will have to sleep to enter into the promise. So here we see a figurative death that leads to a promise fulfilled. So as promised, the Lord builds the helper that fits and then brings her to the man. In the same way the animals and beasts were brought to the man, but this time the response is really different. Rather than discovering lack, rather than seeing something missing, as he did when the animals were brought to him, he finds wholeness, likeness, similarity. And here is his response. Look at verse 23. The man said, this is the first time that the man speaks. And what does he say? This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of me. Here we see the man rejoicing at the completeness, the wholeness that her arrival brings. Because humanity is delivered from the lack of her, her presence and delivered into a place of flourishing and living as God fully intended, ready to fill the earth and subdue it together. Just as back in chapter 1, the author uttered a poem about the male and female and how they would image back uh, to God who he is in chapter 1, now the man does the same. He sings out in joy for the helper God has made. Finally, he says, there is one like me who came from me. Like the animals all had fitting ones for them, now he has one that fits. But unlike the animals, she has been made from his body rather than the dust. The man awakes from his God-given slumber to discover his God-given helper, fitted perfectly to him. God has kept his promise to man, and he has brought about what he called very good from chapter 1. You remember chapter 1 ends with, it's very good, right? Day 6, it's very good. He does that. He completes that. His work is complete. The creation of woman serves as the crescendo of the creation account. 
All is now in order. Things are as they should be, seems to be the refrain. And again, Sailhammer says it this way. At the close of chapter 2, the author puts the final touches on his account of what it means to be made, what it means to be uh, for humankind to be in God's image and likeness. He's finished. He puts the final touches on. So if humanity is the crown of God's creation, then woman is the jewel in that crown. She is something splendid. The final verses of chapter 2 serve as a, a point of application and a point of exclamation. Look with me there. Verse 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. To end the creation account with the statement that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed uh, does three things. First, it reveals the degree to which things were in order. That which causes feelings of shame for most people, almost universally, public nakedness, causes no shame for the man and his wife in the garden. Almost universally, people don't want to be naked in public. Yet, in the garden, it's a good thing. It's a sign of their unity. It's a sign of that things are good. And that which the Bible consistently portrays as shameful, nakedness, is here portrayed as good and right and orderly. It's an exclamation point. It's an exclamation point on how very good things were in the garden. So good that not even nakedness was shameful. Humans had nothing to hide and were free to be themselves with one another. I think second, this phrase, it summarizes. If one had to summarize the quality of life for the man and his wife in the garden, how would one do so? Simply, they were naked and were not ashamed. Third, it, it invites. It's hard to read those words and not long for that type of relational unity and vulnerability. It's designed to say, this is what you were made for before God. It's hard to read those words and think, oh, I don't want that. No, people, that's what we want. We want that type of relational freedom and connection to be known and understood, to be free that way. I said earlier there was a point of exclamation and a point of application. So, so how should one apply this explanation of creation? What do we do with it? The author gives some straightforward guidance because all of that has been explained concerning the man and the woman, uh, he, he summarizes, uh, a man shall leave his wife or sorry, a man shall, that's not good. And a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I think I actually did that in the first service, so I don't know why. Uh, so, so here, uh, there's this, uh, so, so he's telling the reader, what do you do in response to what I'm saying? So what does it mean that the reader should do? In general, men and women leave their natural families and become one in similar fashion as the man and the woman. 
They should live in unity and partnership, bringing flourishing into the world, imaging God through their distinct maleness and femaleness. That's what he's telling them to do, right? This is the application of what's being said. But there's another layer to all of this that I think we should consider. Uh, if, if we consider Paul's take on verse 25 in the letter uh, that he writes to the Ephesian, the Ephesian church, uh, the plot, it, it thickens up a little bit. So look with me over there in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 33. It says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So in the midst of instructing the church concerning marriage, Paul can't resist quoting Genesis 2. And in doing so, he pulls back the curtain to reveal a mystery. And, and here it is. Here's the mystery. Genesis 2.24, in some mysterious way, is speaking about Christ and the church. And one could conclude that all of Genesis 2 is foreshadowing a Christ-church reality. Time fails us this morning to discuss all that Paul intended to say in Ephesians 5. But, it, but I would encourage you uh, to read 5.25 through 33, maybe read the whole chapter even into 6. And, and look at what it might mean for you to imitate the Christ church relationship uh, in your home. What, what these passages mean about your work and your family. Again, if you have specific questions about the ideas of love and submission in marriage, you could go back to that uh, sermon from uh, September in Colossians 3. Colossians 3 is an, a companion passage to this one. Uh, that may be helpful. But for our purposes this morning, I would like to highlight three parallels that Paul mentions between Ephesians 5 and Genesis 2. And here they are. Parallel 1. As the woman and man share a unity of body and likeness, like none of the other created beings, so Christ and his church share a likeness. One body where all are members. One body where all are members, a shared body, a shared likeness. The church is the body of Christ in this world. We image him, reflecting God to all who will see. And we should be sobered by this fact. And we should live accordingly in unity and oneness, loving and serving one another as we would our own bodies. So it's a bit of a lesser to greater argument that if this is true in Genesis 2, how much more is it true for us in the church, in the Christ-church relationship? Second, as the man's sleep and shared body gave life to the woman, so the death of Christ and broken body 
of Christ give life to the church. I'll say that again. As the man's sleep and shared body gave life to the woman, so the death of Christ and the broken, broken body of Christ, it gives life to the church. Christ loved us so deeply that he would have his side split open. Nailed, naked, and ashamed to a cross, knowing that on the other side of that was the joy of obeying his father and securing his beloved bride. Christ slept, right? He died, but he awoke on the third day to the reality that God had kept his promise. And brothers and sisters, one day you and I will fall into the sleep of death and and we will cling to a promise that God will bring us home to his city and his presence. That's the promise. Apart from the return of Christ, which could happen today, I believe that, all of us will have to face the sleep of death. And we will cling to the hope and promise that when we awake, we will behold God himself and be in his presence with God's people. That's a greater promise than the one that he made to Adam. Yet we stand in a promise like that one. Third, as the woman plays a crucial role in the creation narrative, so the bride of Christ plays a crucial role in the culmination of history. Look with me in Revelation 21. Starting in verse 1, it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And then continuing in verse 9, Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me a holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Reflecting the glory of God, splendid, like a rare jewel, a bride. So is it a bride or a city? Well, it seems to be a city bride, right? Really fascinating idea. We see that, the, that as the Bible begins, it concludes in a similar way. God prepares a place for his beloved people, his sons and his daughters, where they can flourish in relationship with him and his son by the Spirit. So what was foreshadowed in Eden with the man and the woman will be fulfilled in a new city of God's people where the bride will be presented in splendor to her husband Christ, much like the wife, the woman, was presented to the man, that he responds with joy. There's a fullness and a wholeness. And just as Genesis 2 ends with an invitation into being naked and unashamed, so the Bible ends 
with this invitation. Look with me at Revelation 22, verse 17. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The invitation is this. Anyone who is thirsty for life is invited to come and drink from the free water of life that God offers. God purchased life for us through the death of Christ, and his overflowing life gives us life, a full life. He died, but he was raised so that you and I today can be raised to new life with him now and forever. That's what's being offered. And if you're here today and and you're thirsty for that, Jesus holds that out to you freely and says, come. In the same way that everybody reads that the man and woman were were naked and unashamed and think, man, I, I like, I want that. So we read, come, take life from Christ. He offers it to you. He purchased it for you. So church, why are we here? Why does God have us here? What are we for? I would say it this way. To reflect God by living with a deep likeness to Christ and unity with one another, inviting those who don't yet know Jesus as their dearest friend, as their husband, to come receive life from him in this life and in the city to come. Would you pray with me? We are astounded by the unity of your word, Lord, that as we pay attention to it, 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 it fits. It fits together well. There's a unity. There's a story. And that story becomes our story as we walk with Christ, as we know him and as we love him, uh, his story becomes our story. And so, Father, we ask today that if there's anyone here who has not yet found themselves in the story of Christ, that today, as they are offered his body, as they are offered to take and eat of him, that, that they would do so with faith. Father, we ask for the church that we would be strengthened as we as one body, take of your body, that we might be strengthened by it, that we might be nourished to do your will, to image you in this world, and to invite those who are far from you to come near. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. And in response to God's word today, we're going to take of the Lord's table and remember that the love that all of us long for in our closest relationships or in marriage is just a shadow and a pointer to the great love of Jesus Christ.